This morning, if you turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, as we did a little intro last week, along with communion, special time last week, this morning we get into the meat of this wonderful book. And it's interesting to me that from the introduction, and remember that Paul is writing to this young understudy, this protege, if you will, the next generation, if you will, the reason that we need to be concerned about raising up that next generation uh, of leaders. And again, as I reminded you last week, a lot of people skipped these pastoral epistles, First, Second Timothy and Titus, because they were written to pastors, uh, is simply silly. Because each one of us has a place of leadership in this world. And we have leadership in our home and leadership in our businesses we have leadership in our communities, leadership in schools. Matter of fact, there's virtually no one who doesn't lead in some way, shape, or form. And if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be leading as a Christian. That's why we want to elect godly rulers so that we can rejoice. Our Christ-like living is what differentiates us between those who know the Lord and those who don't. And so here we have this beautiful First opening volley, if you will, and it's interesting to me that the very first point that the Apostle Paul makes writing to Timothy is, beware of false teachers, because there are all kinds of competing voices out there. There's all kinds of competing philosophy. There are all kinds of competing, if you will, religion. There are all kinds of things competing for the truth of the gospel message and the truth specifically of God's word. There's all kinds of things fighting for that position in your life, in your heart, and in your mind. And if you do not know the truth, if we do not know the truth, then we cannot possibly pass along to the next generation that same truth. I can guarantee you, if you go back and read the works of the Reformers, you're going to find some messages that sound essentially the same to those that are delivered today. The context... Very different, you know, very different living in medieval Europe than it is living here in this world today. But the problems are the same. The issues are the same. The temptations of sin are the same. The things that we're tempted to think and do are roughly the same. We have new ways to express those things. But if you do not know the truth, then you cannot pass along the truth. And so the very first thing Paul does is be careful of false teaching, false doctrines specifically. In other words, the application wrongly of that which the Bible says plainly. There are a lot of churches today whose doctrine are so, is so messed up that they're not teaching the truth. They've just created, in essence, another cult, another religion at very best. And so this morning, before we dig into this passage, we'll be taking verses 3 through 7. Now let's pray, and we'll also pray for Japan and all that's going on there. Father God, as we ponder and think on, on what it must be like to be in that devastated portion of Japan right now from the earthquake and tsunami this week, Lord, we know that you could use this for a great influx uh, of your truth into that nation that is largely unsaved. Lord, very small percentage of the population knows you. And Father, we recognize that as Christians would take up the banner to go and be part of the relief effort, but Lord, not to beat anyone up, but certainly to show your arms of love. Lord, your, your voice of comfort. And, Father, we pray that you'd be with those who have lost loved ones, Lord, for those that are still missing by the thousands. Uh, Lord, we ask that you'd be merciful and gracious and kind, that perhaps even through this immense tragedy that you would bring revival uh, to that land. Wonderful people, many of whom need the gospel message. And, Father, we pray that you'd meet their needs, both provisionally and temporally, but most importantly, that you'd bring the good news that God loves them. Pray that you would bless us as we study this morning in your word. Lord, may we be encouraged to live out our faith, Lord, in ways that would amaze while we're here on this earth. We're thankful for all that you do for us each day. Bless us now as we study in Jesus' name. Amen.
And so he begins here in verse 3, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as I urged you when I went to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And so he begins by differentiating between what he's been teaching and what's available to them. And family of God, can I tell you that in that availability, there are all kinds of messed up, mixed up, ridiculous things that you can go out and and try and blend with the Bible. I can't believe how many people have fallen into the trap. Well, you know, if I just buy more gold, I'll be more saved. Or if I, you know, use herbal medicine, I'll be more saved. Or if I help myself, God only helps those who help themselves. We have all kinds of competing doctrines in our world today. We have people trying to blend Islam and Christianity. We have people trying to blend all kinds of doctrinal things that simply can't be blended. Christianity is oil and water with the rest of the world. If you believe that Christ Jesus is Lord, it cannot be mixed with anything else. It's either a singular truth that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, or it's something that's just like Islam. It's something that's just like Mormonism. It's something that's just like Jehovah's Witnessism. It is just like everything else. If you can change the gospel message, if you can mix it with something, then it is not singularly the way of salvation. And Jesus Christ himself declared plainly that I am, he is the only name under heaven whereby men may be saved. That's it. So, is it an offense? Yes. Do people like to get into arguments? Of course not. So, you know what happens? People deny the truth so that they can stay out of arguments. We do it at our dinner tables with our family. We do it in our schools because we don't want to offend anybody. We've become so religiously, politically correct that everything leads and every road leads to heaven. And Paul says, you better be careful, because I'm charging you, Timothy, with the truth. I'm not charging you with a message that I made up. I'm not giving you something that can be altered. I'm charging you with the indelible truth of God, the gospel message, and all that's contained within the Word of God. You see, and as he does that, he's saying, you can't change it. It's not up to you. that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. He's saying, I want you to pass along what I've passed along to you. Nor give heed to fables or endless genealogies. And that word fables there can also be translated myths. It can be translated falsehood. And endless genealogies was the talk of the day specifically to the Jewish people they would very often reference, we are the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they would trace their lineage back to one of the patriarchs. Very often a Jew could trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. And so in doing so, they were in essence saying, I'm a child of Abraham, i got to be better than you, you're a Gentile. You believe by grace. I've had a history of God's dealing with my people. We all come up with our reasons to why our way is at least equivalent, if not better, than someone else's way. And so he's saying, you better stick to the truth. You better teach what you've been taught. And you need to be careful while you're doing it. Notice what happens when you delve into myths, fables, Endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is for faith. And so he opens this up by saying to us, you better be careful to teach the truth and only the truth. It's not up to you to alter it. There are all kinds of delivery methods for the truth. I very often interject my own life experience. It's called testimony. I often use the news of the day. But the truth that I convey is the same truth that would have been conveyed in Martin Luther's day. Same truth that would have been conveyed by the early church fathers. Christendom probably preached a lot of messages. If you were to lay them side by side, the basic truth is there. 
preached in a way that the audience could understand it and the audience could hear it. That Nehemiah chapter 8 understanding that expository teaching is me telling you in such a way that you can give it and understand it and it gives to you sense and meaning of that passage. That's it. That's why the stories, that's why the application, so that we can then go out and take that into the world. But the truth remains the truth. You have to stick to the truth. False teachers are actually reasonably easy to spot. And it is amazing to me how many times people will just simply overlook some of these simple things that are taught here in this first chapter. Um, False teachers, here, verse 3, basically, biblically, what is wrong? False teaching is teaching that is false. It's wrong according to the word of God. How many people sit around and teach unbiblical things to this day? There are churches all over the world that teach heretical doctrine. Any church that teaches you that if you go to that church, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, is a, you're being fed alive from the pit of hell. That is the doctrine of demons. Because I know some wonderful Christian people that have been through tremendous financial difficulty. I know wonderful Christian people who lose children. We saw that last week. Amen? I know wonderful Christian people who have lived with agonizing pain their whole life. The Bible's full of those stories of God allowing in the lives of sometimes His most righteous servants some very difficult things. False teachers teach what's biblically wrong. False teachers are divisive. One of the things that you're going to find here in uh, verse 4 is that they hang on to fables and endless genealogies that cause disputes. They just want to sit around and haggle over everything. It's amazing to me how many people want to argue about things that they cannot prove from Scripture. I have gotten into some of the most ridiculous debates over things like the doctrine of soul sleep. It's not there. Scripture plainly states that from to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord if you're a Christian. And otherwise, you got one other option, and it's called Sheol. It's the abode of the dead, and you're awaiting judgment. There isn't a place C. There isn't somewhere halfway in between. There are actually churches that that's their principal doctrine. We need to make sure that you've paid penance. That you've spent some time in purgatory squaring away all those bad things you did. If I had to spend time in purgatory, there have not been enough centuries in all of mankind's history that I could purge myself of all of that. And Scripture doesn't teach it. But it's divisive. People sit around and talk about it. Haggle over it. Agonize over it. False teachers are very often very intent on controversy. It's the thing that makes them stand out. Well, we're like this. For instance, the Book of Mormon. Another testimony of Jesus Christ. Stands out. You mean my testimony isn't any good? You see, false teachers do that. They draw attention to things that are not biblically correct, and very often their whole point is to get you wondering whether you actually know the truth or not. False teachers turn away from the personal, and they go to the corporate. They move away from the personal relationship with Jesus Christ and salvation by organization. Or if you belong to our group, you'll be really saved. Or if you belong to our group, actually, we're the only ones who are saved. They'll very often say things like, we're the true church. False teachers very often are looking for nothing more than position and prestige. They want to be at the top. Do you realize that Jesus said to be great in this kingdom is to be the servant of all? That you can spot false teaching by the leadership when the leadership exalts itself to a godlike status and expects of the body anything other than that person should be a servant of all, then they have missed the true teaching of Scripture. 
Pastors are supposed to be servants. That's what Jesus was. And if that's what Jesus was, that's what I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be other-centered as he was, not me-centered. And the same is true for each of us. And very often, and this is one of those things that you can certainly see in some of the pseudo-Christian cults in our day, that they will often set grace and the law against each other. Oh, you've got too much grace and not enough law. You see, if you were really saved, then you would have a lot more law. Now, does that free us from living Christ-like and holy lives? Of course not. If we are children of God, then we should live like God's children. And we are supposed to live holy lives. But that grace is sufficient for our weaknesses. And very often you'll see in those who teach false things, they will aim you back towards the Ten Commandments or back towards the Levitical law, or back towards the Mosaic law. We got set free from the law by grace. We're supposed to remain free. And because we're free, we're actually more free to live grace-filled, holy lives. It's the only way I can do it. It's the only way you can do it. And it's the only thing we should be teaching. And so Paul gives a sense of urgency here, and he, he's, I want to just draw your attention. He, he's writing uh, this letter, in essence, from Ephesus. This was a huge center of the world's population at the time, so he knew what it was like in the world. I think one of the messages here is we need to be involved in our world. I hate it when Christians join their little stupid Christian clubs and they withdraw themselves from the world, and they no longer have non-Christian friends. They don't interact in the world in any way, shape, or form. They sit around and they get their little holier-than-thou club, and that we're over here, we're being unstained by the world, and our Bible study is better than your Bible study. There's an urgency to the things that we're doing because it's sinners who need to be saved that we're after. You're not going to reach anybody by withdrawing into some little cult, moving to a mountaintop someplace, and making sure that no ungodly influences ever come near you. Can I remind you, Jesus did not do that, and the Apostle Paul did not do that. They were both very actively engaged in the culture. Did they remain true to the word? Absolutely. Jesus himself being God was sinless. Paul attempted to remain sinless. But we need to be engaged. It's urgent. The time is short. We need to be moving out, not withdrawing from the world. And by the way, being urgent doesn't necessarily mean doing something new. It just means doing what you're supposed to be doing. Taking that opportunity to minister where you can. Where I can. He tells Timothy here to remain. You know, sometimes the thing that we need to hear is, stand strong, brother or sister. Just hang in there. Time is short. I I can't tell you how precious it is to me when people say, don't give up. You know, don't let this get to you. Hang in there. This too shall pass. You know, there are times when we all get frustrated. We all get wearied. And Paul writes to Timothy, hang in there, remain, stay, stay put, stand fast. He would write to the church at Ephesus, having done all the stand, stand, therefore. Be tough. Sometimes we just need to toughen up a bit, I believe. And he says that this doctrine, which is literally could be translated just simply teaching, it's simply teaching what you've been taught. It's passing along what has been given to us. It doesn't require something new. That's the amazing thing about teaching the Bible. I have taught every single book of the Bible multiple times. I've taught many of those books of the Bible at the college level. In Bible college, I can tell you 100% of the time, when I pick up the Bible and I read a passage for who knows the how manyth time, I find something new. 
Something stands out. Something that's applicable to the day that I got up in. That's also applicable to the past and is going to be applicable to the future as well. All I need to do is just teach what I've been taught. And do it in a relevant way. In a way that someone could hear it and go, oh, that's what it means. He says, teach that doctrine. You know what, family of God? I'm not at liberty to change the doctrine that's clearly laid out in the Bible. I'm just simply not. I'm not allowed to come up with some new way. Some new truth. Some new kind of life. There's only one. It is Christ Jesus as Lord. And the things that happen from that have been clearly laid out in the Scriptures. And so I can teach those things to someone else. I don't have to guess at it. I do not need Oprah. Uh, I do not need Dr. Oz. Uh, I do not need Deepak Chopra. Uh, I don't need Glenn Beck and O'Reilly and Fox. You know that a lot of people, what they understand about biblical Christianity comes from Glenn Beck, who's a Mormon, or Dennis Prager, who's Jewish. And again, wonderful commentators, if you listen to those guys all the time, God bless you, but get your doctrine from the Bible. This is life. Some of the stuff that's said on Fox News is endless genealogies, amen? I hate to break and burst everybody's bubble, but not everything Glenn Beck says is true. Not everything Dennis Prager says is true. And I listen to those guys. You ever notice how there's no liberal talk talk radio? It's because they argue with each other. Constantly. You, You see, we get our truths with regard to what we believe about God, our theology, in other words, the science of understanding God, that comes from our Bibles. It comes from no other source. Now, prayerfully, I am committing to you the word of God by helping you understand what this passage says. Maybe I've torn apart a few Greek words. Maybe I've looked at the Latin roots, which have been translated into English. Maybe there are some things that I can help you with, because that's my job. God's anointed me as a pastor, called me as a pastor, and part of what I'm supposed to do is help you understand this. But I'm supposed to help you understand this. Not make something up as I go. Those myths and genealogies could have come from a lot of places at that time. They likely came from Gnosticism and likely came from the Judaizers of the day. The Gnostics said you need some special kind of knowledge. The Judaizers said you need to be Jewish and Christian. That was the problem then. What is it today? Because we have the same problems today. A lot of it is pop psychology mixed with Christianity. Well, you just need to understand that everything that's wrong in your life is a disease. I got the disease of this and the disease of that, and nothing is my fault. Well, that is the truth of our world today. That is what television portrays. That is what movies portray. That is what sociologists say today. You see, the application of truth is different today, but the problem's the same. I can't blend anything with the gospel message, with the truth of God's Word. I need to stay true to God's Word. So when someone comes to me and says, this is the reason I believe I should be able to be bitter, I can say, no, as a child of God, you can't. Well, this is the reason I can be unloving. As a child of God, Scripture says you can't do that because he first loved you. You see, I alter what I think because of what I know. I don't alter what I know because of what I think. Do you understand the difference? The world says you need to take those things which are going on right now in the world and you need to alter what God's Word says because it was written too long ago. That is a very common mantra today in the church in America. It's become irrelevant. 
specifically with things like homosexuality. Well, we didn't know that there were genetic causes for that. Family of God, we still don't know that there are genetic causes for homosexuality. You're trying to reverse engineer the human genome to point out one single gene that everybody has in common, and now you find out that they happen to be also gay. It doesn't mean that that caused it. It just simply means that they have that particular gene. Only God in heaven knows what he's done with all of that information. But I can tell you what his word says. And he calls that lifestyle a sin. And that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, is that an offense? You better believe it is. Is that meant to harm anyone? No, it's meant to help those who need to hear the message. Because God said it, not me. I am not at liberty to change God's position on those topics. The same is true for drunkenness. The same is true for fornication. The same is true for anger, bitterness, hate, envy, strife, vainglory, and about a billion other things that Scripture plainly speaks to. My job is not to change what it says, it's to say what it says. That gets me into some conversations with people that they don't like. Then I need to either do it faithfully or stop being a pastor, one of the two. That's the choice. What he's saying here really was applicational at that day and time to what we would call cults or false religions of our day. And I want to briefly spend just a little bit of time to help you understand this. And I want to clearly start this little section by telling you something. What I say to you as the body of Christ, largely everyone in this room knows the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of you have been attending here for a long time. You know the Lord. You're, you're entertaining the truth of God's word in your life every day. We are supposed to be strong in this world and be salt and light. We can't be salt and light if every time someone comes to us, who has a different opinion about something, we change ours because we don't want to be argumentative with them. Family of God, the church, I believe, has become ineffective because every time somebody comes with some evidence that some cult is nice, or, as we were talking about this morning, Islam is a religion of peace. It's not a religion of peace, number one. Number two, everyone who walks in it is perishing eternally. Now, as soon as you say that, you stir up the entire world. But I just said that to the... Now, in knowing the difference between the two, you need to go and find ways to reach that Muslim neighbor. You need to be able to be salt and light in that person's life so that they can receive it, as we talked about on Wednesday night. We need to say what we say in such a way that they want what we have. But to you, the church, I need to speak with meat not with milk. I need to make sure that you understand what's at stake here. And so what I say to you, I would not say the same way to someone who's a Mormon or someone who is a Muslim or someone who's a Jehovah's Witness. I would try and find some common ground, something we can talk about and that we can open up a dialogue on and then begin to minister to wherever I can in that person's life. But to you, if I do not tell you the truth, and you walk out of the doors of this church, and you think Mormons are Christians, or you think that Islam is another way to heaven, or you think that because Christian science is Christian, and it's science that they're okay with God, then I have failed at my task. Because none of those things are true. Christian science is neither Christian, nor is it science. It is a complete oxymoron. Islam is the world's largest cult. And yes, I just said that. Is it the largest world religion? Yes, that's true too. And I want to help you define these things so that when someone says, Hey, I'm a uh, practicing Buddhist. I'm a practicing Muslim. I'm a practicing whatever. 
that you will understand what that means. And you'll look for ways to share the central truth because there are some that are very unique. Dr. Rodney Stark once said a number of years ago, he was actually commenting during a teaching that he was doing on cults. and He's an eminent sociologist, very well respected. He was talking about a group of people that ultimately by 2080 would become the most influential religion on earth. And he said that they would overtake the influence of Islam. Do you know which group that was? It was Mormons. You see, why? Because they do some of the most charitable, wonderful, Christian-looking things that you will ever see on this earth. The problem is the central teachings, the thing that Paul's warning Timothy about, about who makes up a Christian and what that looks like, they're missing. So on one hand, wonderful, beautiful, awesome to have as neighbors. All of those things are true. But apart from a relationship with the real Jesus, who is not a created being, but rather one of the three portions of a triune Godhead, then they're lost. Some people will say, well, what's a cult? It's basically a group of people that's gathered around one person's misinterpretation of what the Bible says. That's what it is. And you're going to really easily see some of that here in the next couple of minutes. Because anyone can parade as a believer for a short period of time. Amen? It's easy. We call it speaking Christianese, right? Even Jesus? Yep. Then you ask him who Jesus Well, Jesus was a cosmic consciousness. He was a blend of Buddha and, uh, and my Uncle Bob. Because my Uncle Bob was really nice. You see, you've got to define who their Jesus is, don't you? Somebody tells you, I believe in Jesus. Do you realize that, that Islam believes in Jesus? Ask any Muslim, do you believe in Jesus? They will say yes. But they believe he's a prophet of God. And that's it. And in fact, the Quran plainly states that Allah has no son. So is it the same Jesus? Nope. You see, in this particular case, it revolves around Muhammad's misinterpretation of the plain teachings of Scripture. Very clear doctrinal characteristics Cults very often promote the false teaching of the nature of God. The Bible teaches that he comes in three persons, the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. Almost without exception, all false teaching will limit the work of Jesus Christ and make God usually some just supreme being who is mostly angry with everyone. False teaching of God. Second thing is a false view of Jesus. We believe that Jesus Christ is 100% man and 100% God. Amen? It's who Jesus is. It's called the hypostatic union. If you want a big word, hypostatic union. We believe he's 100% both. All cults believe he is either one or the other, but never both. And very often, neither. He might be one of Lucifer's brothers. He could be one of the prophets of God. They almost always have a false teaching, false teaching about salvation and almost always a works-oriented salvation. You can see that clearly in most of these groups that we're talking about. You look at the Mormon church, you look at the Jehovah's Witness, you look at Christian science, you look at Islam. They all teach, in essence, salvation by works. You do enough good things, maybe Allah will have a nice day and let you into paradise. But not necessarily, because Allah is capricious sometimes. Because his word plainly declares, the Quran plainly states, that Allah wills to do as Allah wills. He is under no obligation with his created beings to ever let you into paradise, including if you become a martyr. That is just simply the surest way. You see, so when you're talking about false teaching, for Christians to stand around and go, well, my friend's a, uh, he's a, he's a Mormon. And you don't care? 
then you don't care if your friend goes to heaven. For you to sit around and wonder whether that Muslim person believes in the same God as you is to not care whether they make it to heaven. Remember, I'm talking to the church. Now, you can sit around all day long and justify why you think what you think or do what you do. But the simple fact of the matter, there is only one gospel and there is only one name and there's only one plan of salvation and there's only one guaranteed way to have eternal life. And that is Jesus Christ as Lord. So if you mess with God's plan of salvation, if you mess with Jesus Christ, if you're relying on a biblical source of information, which also is a character of those who teach falsely, like, for instance, the Mormon church has four standard works. They use the King James Bible very infrequently, the Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrines and Covenants, and the Book of Mormon. Three of those were written by one guy, in essence. The Book of Mormon came from Joseph Smith. The other two, Pearl of Great Price, Doctrines and Covenants, were basically his dreams for the most part. They were like the commentary on life. They don't teach that Jesus Christ is the way. Matter of fact, they teach that the Bible became polluted and that God said that there was going to be a new way of salvation, plainly negating the plain statement of Revelation chapter 22, that cursed is he who adds or subtracts from the things of this book. You see, they rely on other sources of information. Same is true for the Christian science church. When you see those Christian science reading rooms, now be honest, how many of you thought, man, they must have good books in there? Because it's Christian and it's science. And you go in there and you find out it's all about mind science. Then you find out they don't believe in, in medical care. So they leave their children without vaccinations. They don't seek medical care themselves. Mary Baker Eddy herself, in her, in her book, The Science of Health with the Keys to the Scriptures, actually said that if one has biblical faith, then one does not need doctors. Do you realize she died addicted to laudanum? Because she never took care of herself. She let her teeth rot out. Well, I've got enough faith, so I, I can't go get medical care now. And yet there are all kinds of people who have friends who are Christian science. Well, they're Christian science. They must be saved. You know, Christian, that means little Christ, right? And science, they must be really smart Christians. Family, we need to know what's false and what is true. Jehovah's Witnesses. Admit it. When they come to your door and they're dressed in their long dresses and nice, you know, wow, they're really polite and they're so upstanding and they're so lost. Because they have their own Bible. It's called the New World Translation. You want to know how many churches use it in the entire world? I'll give you a guess. It begins with an O. One. Them. It's because they've altered it to take the Godhead out of it. You, you see, you've got to have the right Jesus. You've got to have the right God. You've got to have the right Word of God. To have anything else and to teach it is heretical. This is our lost. Now, can there be saved people in all of these groups? Yes, there can. But it's by accident, it's not by plan and purpose with regard to that organization. Because they don't teach salvation. It's like, I had a guy come to me and he goes, well, you know, I think Scientology's got it right. I mean, after all, look how they bring their babies into the world in silent birth and there's, there's no influence on them. And that is an absurdity. L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction writer. He was not a Christian. And yet, you'll have people who are scientists. Well, we're Christian. We have a Christian worldview. Now you have a satanic worldview. It's deception. And they're not saved. You'll see some sociologic things, too. They're very authoritarian. Extremely controlled environments. You're not allowed outside of the group. You're not allowed to 
in essence, fellowship with other people. You're discouraged from meeting any literature that isn't produced by that group. Very elitist mentality. Very often you'll hear things like, we are the true church. And by the way, that is a plain proclamation of the Mormon church. They are the true church. They are the ones, the only ones that are going to celestial heaven and achieve godhood. Everybody else beneath that. Plain, plain teaching of the church. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say today, well, you know, you haven't been all that good while you've been here on earth. You've only been saved for 34 seconds. So, mm, 47,000 years in purgatory, followed by a lower level of heaven. That's all you get. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Praise God for that. Because that makes it grace, not works. That makes it faith that saves, not works. That makes it no good thing that you can do, but only a gift that you can receive. You see all these groups, this false teaching that he's warning against here. He's basically saying, make sure that you understand the difference between religion and relationship. You'll also notice that most of these groups all have pretty much the same mentality. They, they, they do things the same way. They, they work by deception. They kind of bait you in. You know, here, oh, we're really nice. You know, if you come to our church, you know, and you have hard financial times, we'll take care of you. They don't tell you the part about every year you go and meet with your ward bishop so that they can review your finances faithfully 10%, or you're not in that group. Oops. It's moral deception. Promising things that they cannot deliver on and will not deliver on. Aggressive proselytizing, another thing that you can see very, very, very clearly. They basically have quotas. You guys are all familiar with Mormon missionaries, I'm sure. Those nice, clean-cut 18 to 20-year-olds, because they have to do it. It's part of the Mormon church. You have to go on a two-year mission. You turn 18, you go on a mission. Well, I'm not called to be a missionary. You go on a mission. And it's extremely aggressive. You got quotas. Did you go down this street? Did you go down that street? I don't see that in my Bible. Matter of fact, Scripture plainly states not all have called been called to be evangelists. There are people who simply don't have that gift. You do have one, at least, but it may not be the same as everybody else's, and you can't cookie-cutter things like that. That's called religion. They also twist the Scriptures and what they plainly state. So you need to be careful when you start thinking about false teaching that you include all of the groups that look like they're kind of Christian. That's going to set you at odds with some of your friends, some of your neighbors, probably some of your relatives. But would you rather tell them the eternal truth and have them saved or tell them a lie and have them lost? That's what's at stake. Verse 5, And now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from sincere faith. You, you see, the motivation of this is you can't really love somebody unless you're concerned about their eternity. How can I really love somebody if I don't care if they perish? How can I say that, oh, I love that person, but they're going to hell and I do nothing about it? Some of you are probably thinking to yourself, wow, that's kind of challenging. Yes, it's challenging. We need to be concerned about people's eternities. And not just people we like. Scripture's pretty clear on that issue. It's easy to love those who love you back, amen? Loosely paraphrasing what it says. But true love is manifest when you love those who persecute you or hate you. But if I want to have a clean conscience, 
that I've got to care. I have to love. Under God's management and God's economy, these guys were all concerned about what they were wearing and what they were drinking and where they were sitting at the festivals. And the true act of love is, are you concerned whether they're going to make it to heaven or not? You see, if you get that right, then everything else doesn't matter. But if you don't get that right, then everything else is a distraction. That's why Jesus said it's easier, much easier, for a camel to make it through the eye of the needle in the gate than a rich man into the kingdom of heaven. He's so distracted by his riches. He so thinks that his philanthropy, philanthropy, yeah, whatever, the sinuses are accurate. Philanthropy. So concerned with those things and all the good deeds and the works that look godly and the things that are nice he's doing in the world that he forgets about his own place in the kingdom. He says there's all kinds of distractions. So we started this passage. There are all kinds of things competing for the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word. There are all kinds of ostensibly wonderful things that people are engaged in that are actually keeping them from the kingdom of heaven. You know, I wonder sometimes if we don't have the cult of pleasure in this country. So consumed with with doing, and again, I am all for you spending time with your families, have wonderful vacations, go enjoy life. God's called us to do that too. But in its place, not as a way of life. When we have that phrase here in this country, I'm living for the weekend, you know what that really means? I'm living for me. I'm not living for Christ, I'm living for me. We're supposed to be living for Him. And if we do that, then we have, as I said last time, these things in balance. We, we do have a balance between pleasure and pain, Amen. This last month, as I've been sick, finally got antibiotics, and the doctor says, are you an idiot? I said, yes. I'm stubborn and prideful, but other than that, I'm fine. You, you see, as we, as we really recognize that we have purposes and plans to which we've been called to this earth that are outside of just the mental things that we think, God's actually left me here for a reason. He's got a plan for my life. I'm supposed to be thinking about what he wants, and that will always make me others-centered. If you're truly thinking about what God wants, it will always make you others-centered. It doesn't mean you'll exclusively think on others. It just means others-centered. In other words, your focus is not you anymore. In our country, we have a God of prosperity. There are a lot of people worship at that altar. Very focused on me. The cure to that is getting focused on God. And off of me. Seeing the needs of others. You see, sometimes we get so focused in on thinking the way the world thinks that it affects the way we view God's word. I've had people come to me and they'll go, you know, I know the Bible says, but the moment that word but comes out, I automatically know they're looking to explain away why they're not going to do what God's word says plainly. True doctrine is we do what it says. Doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Notice who's deceived in that James 1 passage. Me. I look at it and go, oops, I know it says that, but I'm not going to do it. and I'm not really going to care about that person because they're rotten. God cares about rotten people. Yeah, amen. A lot of us in this room wouldn't be saved if God didn't care about rotten people. Amen? God didn't care about mean-spirited, hateful people at times. A lot of us would never find the Lord. Do we get our doctrine from Scripture? I pray so. Do we teach what we've been taught? I pray so. Do we not let the world creep in by interjecting into what we believe the falsehoods of this world? 
I pray so. We need to get what we believe about God from our Bibles. Not from some magazine. You see, it's that sincere, sincere faith that helps us to love genuinely. It actually enables us to do that. Because love, by the world's sense, is selfish, isn't it? Generally speaking, not all. I'm not trying to make too big of a generalization. But largely, the world's love is selfish. What can I get out of this relationship? God's love is exactly the opposite. What can I give into this relationship? And if that relationship is with the lost people that you're around, then you have to care about them. need to minister to them. means that we're sincere and it actually says that that we'd have sincere faith that means without hypocrisy by the way hypocrisy is not most people's favorite topic because we all get caught in it every once in a while something where our life doesn't match up with what we say the Latin from which that's translated is two words sincera it means without wax because you can cheat people, they did during that day, making pottery and or statuary. They would simply fill in the imperfections with wax. But as soon as the noonday heat came out or it got put in the fire, all of a sudden it, you realize it was a cracked pot. You see, to be sincere is to show your flaws. It's to be genuine. I'm going to make it. God told me I would not cough. We shouldn't allow anything to distract us from true, true gospel message. We, we shouldn't allow anything to affect us, if you will, to where we lose sight of what truth is. And I pray we will do that. Remain focused on what God's word actually says and live and do that. Teach that. So that when he comes to get his church, we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you're too good. Lord, thank you for being faithful to me this morning. Just enabling my voice for this time. Grateful for all that you're doing in this church. And as we draw deeply from your well of life, Lord, from this beautiful book we call the Bible, but really it is the Word, and it's what you, Jesus, declared of yourself. You said, I am the Word, and he that abides in me. Lord, we want to abide in you, and we pray that you would bless us as we endeavor to do that. Help us to stay true to what your Word says. We thank you for this time. We pray now that you would impart these things to our minds and to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand. Let's